You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. We're over in Isaiah chapter number 51 this evening, and of course, I'm going to have to do a little bit of reviewing with you um, because it's been a couple weeks here since we've been together in Isaiah 51. Uh, so, starts out here in Isaiah chapter number 51, and again, remember that we've turned a corner again, as I like the, the same analogy I like to use, and we're talking about the Messiah and about future events that are to come. And in in chapter 51, he speaks to Israel here again about future events, about a future destruction that is going to be coming upon them via Babylon, and then captivity, followed by a release from captivity and comparing, uh, in a sense, Cyrus, the future king of Persia, of the Medes, um, being in a sense a little s savior and allowing them to return back to their land Comparing that to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, like we just sang about, being the capital S Savior and allowing them, uh, allowing them eternal freedom and eternal joy. Thank you. And so in the beginning of chapter 51, he says, listen to me. Ye that follow after righteousness, hearken to me. Ye that seek the Lord, look unto the rock. Whence you're hewn into the hole of the pit, whence you're digged. And throughout this chapter, he's going to point back to past events. Now, sometimes the event is plain and obvious. Sometimes the event is a little more of a head scratcher as to what he's pointing out. And you'll see as we go along what I mean by that. But in verse 2, he says, look back to Abraham. Look back to Sarah, uh, who, who bore you. And he says, for I called him, that's Abraham, alone and blessed him and increased him. And we talked about uh, that concept last week, how Abraham did not need an army, nor did Abraham need uh, a massive gathering of people. God wanted a single man to go and to obey perfectly what he asked him to do. And so God blessed him and God increased him. So he says, look at Abraham. Then he also says in verse number three, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And we talked about that verse, how it's such a beautiful verse to me because he's basically telling to Israel, yes, there's going to be some some barren times ahead for you, but you know what I'm going to do to those deserts? I'm going to take those deserts and I'm going to turn them into gardens. And we talked about spiritual deserts and spiritual gardens last week and reminding ourselves we as Christians don't have to dwell purposefully in a spiritual desert. Maybe you find yourself there. Maybe it seems like the spiritual life has been sucked out of you, maybe by sin or temptation or something else going on in your life. Maybe it was a a lack of a relationship with God and not having spent time with him, talking to him in his word or even in the house of God, you begin to spiritually wither upon the vine and you find yourself in this spiritual desert where you feel like there's no life. So as I said last week, he desires to take those spiritual deserts and to turn them into gardens. Now, the garden does not come necessarily through my planting or through my planning. The garden comes through his blessing and his increase, like he gave to Abraham and to Sarah. And it also brings thanksgiving, joy, gladness, and the very last word of verse 3, the voice of melody, singing. You ever catch yourself walking around singing? Are there certain maybe days of the week where you don't catch yourself singing? <laughs> or maybe certain points in your week or in your life uh, that you don't catch yourself singing? Remember when I was a kid, I could be walking out of school and I could be all happy and excited about life. I'm going home. This is great. And then I get to my car in the parking lot. Now, my mom's coming to pick me up. Let me you know, say that much. So I get there to the car 
in the parking lot and my mom's waiting. And this should be, you know, the happy reunion. But I happen to spy in the backseat of my car or something that ruins the rest of my day. And you guess what it is? It's not cucumbers. I can tell you that. It was my violin case. Because that meant today is violin lesson day. And let me tell you, I was not one to willingly take any kind of music lessons. <laughs> uh, at first, I started because I wanted to. But as most kids go, they don't usually want to continue going. Uh, it's up to mom and dad uh, to continue to push it. Like, no, this is good for you. You need this. Especially if they're, if they're talented in that area, maybe they're just lazy. That was me. I was just lazy, and I didn't want to practice. I didn't want to, to push ahead to meet the expectations. And my mom knew I was talented in this area, and you're just being lazy. So, no, you don't get to just quit because you're lazy. Uh, you're going to keep going. Um, even though I didn't enjoy it then. Now, of course, when I got to college, you know what I did? I minored in music and continued to take violin lessons up through college. And I did that willingly, uh, much to my mom's pleasure. And of course, maybe others who you know get to hear my violin playing. But um, when I would walk up to that car and see my violin case in the back, oh man, just like when I'd be playing or doing something I'd enjoy doing. And my mom would say, Nathan, did you practice your violin today? It was just my, my whole world shut down right at that moment. That's how badly I did not want to practice my violin. Now, I didn't throw a fit or, or yell or anything like that, but I still had to obey and I still did it. And I'm thankful I did. And I'm thankful my mom went through the daily torture <laughs> of having to make me do that. Because I'm sure it was every bit as torturous for her as it was for me uh, to, to put up with me, to make me do those things. But at that particular moment in my day, I wasn't wanting to sing. I might have been humming some tune as I walked down the sidewalk at school. And then I got to the car and suddenly that tune was just sucked out of me. Maybe there's a certain day of the week where you've got some sort of responsibility that you don't particularly look forward to or enjoy. Uh, or a certain time of month, maybe there's some sort of responsibility. And there's nothing seems green or exciting or particularly wonderful about that day. You don't sing. But then some people can dwell in that kind of, that, that period in their life for a long time. Maybe a tragedy came along and it just kind of sucked the spiritual joy out of them. It doesn't have to stay that way, though. It doesn't have to be that way. Maybe, maybe there was something that happened to them that just seemed unfair. And it caused or raised some questions in their heart. And they began to walk in a spiritual desert. For a long time, and there was no song or joy in their heart. What does he desire to bring? He says to Israel, and far off in captivity, out in the middle of the desert, he says, I desire to take your barren places. I desire to take your wilderness, your waste places. And I will comfort you. And I will bring joy and gladness and thanksgiving in the voice of melody. But you know what it doesn't say? He was going to do. It doesn't say he was going to fix all of their problems. And of course, we can look back <clears throat> throughout Israel's history, and even after Israel returned after the captivity, you know, they had some, some real struggles to rebuild the city and the temple. And even then, boy, they have a, a long history of being troubled there in that land of Israel. A long history of being troubled until finally one day they were allowed to return back to it as their own nation in the early 1900s. We continue to read here. He says, hearken unto me. In other words, listen up again. Getting their attention to make sure they're listening. Hearken unto me, my people. And give an ear unto me, O my nation. For a law shall proceed from me. And I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. And mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me. And on mine arm shall they trust. Notice what they're trusting on. On my arm shall they. Who is they? Not just Israel, but the isles here. Referring to the faraway distant lands. The heathen nations. Those who were not brought up to serve God. These are the heathen nations across the ocean. And even their neighboring nations. Is on my arm one day they are going to trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for 
for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they shall dwell therein, and sorry, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. In light of these things that he is saying here, and that he's going to continue to say in verses 7, 8, 7 and 8, beginning in verse 9, he's going to have some expectations of where they need to be looking and listening. He says, understand this, the earth, it's going to vanish and it's going to pass away. You know, looking ahead to uh, apocalyptic times, you know, in the book of Revelation, and you can clearly see what he is talking about there. But he says, just because the heavens and earth are going to pass away one day, and all the people that dwell therein, understand this, everything about me is eternal. Therefore, my salvation is eternal. Everything about me is sure and unmovable. Therefore, if you are my children, you also will be sure and unmovable. Verse 7, he says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness, we see this repetition, but my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. And we saw this in this passage here. Again, he's speaking to Israel here. And he is saying, you have no reason to fear other men. You have no reason to fear the Assyrians or the Babylonians, even though they're going to. But you have no reason to fear the Medes and the Persians. You have no reason to fear in the future the Ottoman Empire. You have no reason to fear the Roman Empire. You have no reason to fear um, the, uh, the Muslims as they come into the Middle East and begin to take over Israel. In the future, you have no reason to fear all of these people because understand this, as he said there, the worm shall eat them like wool. Later, he's going to compare them to grass. And when I go through and I mow grass, especially if it's tall, uh, like up in that front area of the church, I'll mow it and then I'll let the, dead, I'll, I'll let the grass lay uh, before I go and try to spread it out. Because if I try to spread it out while it's still green or wet, it's not going to work very well. So I'll just let it lay and then I'll finish. And then at the very end, I'll come back and then I will go and spread that grass out. Because after it's been sitting out in the sun for an hour or two, uh, it's dried out pretty quickly. And then when I go through to try to cut it up and spread it all out, it cuts up into smaller pieces more finely and spreads out so that it's hardly noticeable after that. Grass is so fine. Grass is so weak compared to a tree, for example. And he says men are like grass. They're subject to the whims of time. They're subject to the weather. They're subject to the warmth. They're subject to the trimmings of men or of deer or other animals as they come along. They're weak and they can die so easily. Why do you worry about men? But I also notice here, not just, not just God is eternal, but he says, but my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. His plan of salvation will continue just like his love for his people Israel will continue from generation to generation. He is not going to just turn his back on Israel. He has made a promise to them. But now we get up to verse number nine, where I uh, ended up ended off a couple weeks ago. And I want to read verses nine through 16 here as a whole group, because it begins with the words, awake, awake, put on strength. And then at the next section in verse 17 also begins with awake, awake. But he is speaking in both cases, he is speaking to Israel. But in verse number nine, it says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. In a sense, he is speaking to God in verse number nine, but does he really need to wake God up? Does he really need to convince God to put on his strength? Well, the obvious answer to that is no. So then who is he really speaking to here? Well, he's still speaking to Israel in verse number nine uh, because he is causing Israel to rise up and to say these words. Why? Well, as I'm going to mention here in a little bit, it is to increase their faith. But let's read the verses. My mouth is getting real dry this evening. All right, verse number nine says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as, as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Art, not thou, art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried the sea and waters of the great deep that hath made the depths of the sea on a, a way or a road for the ransom to pass over? 
Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker, that has stretched forth the heavens, and laid the foundations of the earth, and hast feared continually every day, because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy? And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God, that divided the sea, whose waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, Thou art my people. I like this section. But he go back to the beginning where he says, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Here we have the faithful believer who is calling out to the Lord, looking to the Lord for salvation. Why? Because they are looking back to God's great works of the past. Like when he says, Awake, as in ancient days, in the generations of old. And then he's going to ask a few questions here. Is this God not the same God that? And then they'll mention some things from the past. What's curious, though, is the way it is worded here at the beginning. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This wake-up call is not a wake-up call for God. It's more of a wake-up call for the believer. Psalm 121, verse number 4 says this, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither, sleep, neither slumber nor sleep. So they're not calling to wake up God on Israel's behalf. No. It's for the believer to call upon the Lord in this way. Why? Because it awakens our faith. As we get up and we begin to call, even in such a poetic way as this, as we call for an awakening here, as we call for an awakening of the strength and power of God because of the great things that He did in Pentecost, because of the great things He did during the Great Awakenings, because of the great things that He is doing in other places, we call upon Him to awake is it that God is asleep? No, it is not. But it is that my awareness of God's power needs to be awakened. My remembrance of what God has done in the past on my behalf and on others needs to be awakened. This is the purpose of the phrase. He says, Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? This Name Rahab, it's easy to, to, to read it and wonder what in the world he's talking about here. I want you to hold your finger here and go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Because we all know who Rahab is from the Old Testament. She was in the city of Jericho and the spies came in and uh, she hid the Israeli spies in Jericho up on her rooftops under some flax and uh, the guards came and left and because she was willing to have faith in God and help the spies, she was preserved when the city of Jericho fell. And in one sense, I think to myself as I read this verse, well, maybe he's talking about cutting you know, Rahab away from the rest of Jericho when it fell. But if we look at Psalm 89, I don't know if I said 69 or not, but I meant 89. I went to 69 though, so now I have to go and find the right one. Psalm 89, I want you to look at verse number 10. Here's another use of the name Rahab, which doesn't seem to fit the Old Testament story. Psalm 89, verse number 10 says, Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. If we back up a little bit, we're going to see some, some of the same pictures that Isaiah is going to give us. Uh, he says in verse number 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. 
Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine. The earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. Now, did he cut Rahab into pieces? No. I don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where Rahab was cut into pieces. The name Rahab in, in Hebrew means pride. And when we take a look at the passage back here again in Isaiah 51, he says, uh, let's see, Art not thou, art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Now, those two might seem like they're mutually exclusive stories, but I believe he's talking about here is remembering the defeat of pride. Because this is what Rahab, the name Rahab in Hebrew means. It means pride. Destroying pride back there in the Garden of Eden. And the serpent, the name serpent, has always been associated with Satan, with Lucifer. Uh, back in you know, Genesis 3, we, he's referred to as that old serpent. He's referred to as a serpent, even when he took on the form of a serpent there in the Garden. So I believe this is speaking in poetic term of, in terms of God's victory over Satan. So he says, again, Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? God, were you not able to defeat Lucifer, the devil, Satan, that great dragon? Are you not the one who is able to bring down this great evil and wickedness and destroy such pride? What pride are you talking about, preacher? The pride that caused him to puff himself up and to lift himself up when he was up in heaven and say to himself, you know what? I deserve to have as much recognition as God. I ought to be treated just like a God. And he began to elevate and puff himself up in pride. And it was unjustifiable pride. And wounded the dragon. Of course, we think back to Genesis when the serpent bit the foot of mankind, but mankind stomped on the head of the serpent, crushed the head of the serpent. Yes, this was the power of God that did those things. We continue on. He says, Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. With every enemy defeated, with every obstacle taken care of. And he, Isaiah talks about this, about God parting waters and giving them a way or a road to travel. About God leveling mountains if he had to, to make sure there was a way for Israel to make it back to their land. About God taking care of every obstacle. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Here's another promise. A promise with a near fulfillment, yes, because Israel did get to return back to Jerusalem. Uh, when Cyrus allowed them to return. But it's talking about a future fulfillment as well. There will be that day at the beginning of the millennial reign when God or when Jesus Christ comes himself and descends from the sky and lands there upon that mount, bringing us who were raptured up to be with him. We come following him down on, on white horseback and we come down and he destroys his enemies there and he begins to rule and reign there in Jerusalem and Jews and believers from all over begin to come towards Jerusalem to live there in Jerusalem. And we believe he's talking about this future kingdom as well. We go on to the crux of this particular passage here, verses 9 through 16. And forgettest the Lord thy maker. And forgettest the Lord thy maker. How could you forget the Lord thy maker? Let's go back and Let's read it again. He says, I, even I, am he that comforteth you. Who art thou? Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forgettest the Lord thy maker that hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You forgot about me. And what happens when you forgot about me? The next phrase says, and hast feared continually every day. Isn't it interesting how these two so well work hand in hand? 
We're only going to live in fear continually every day if we forget the Lord. There are people out there today that live in fear on a daily basis. It may be because of health. It may be because of finances. It may be because they fear the collapse of the world or society. It may be because you know, they're in a war zone. But there's people out there today that are living constantly in fear. And it may seem sometimes that my fear is minuscule compared to somebody who's living on the border of Ukraine and Russia and dealing with the fear of missiles and bombs and soldiers on a daily basis. But he says the reason you fear is because you forget the Lord. Perfect, perfect love casteth out fear. And when we love the Lord and when we understand him, fear and, and the presence of God are exclusive from one another. If I am remembering the Lord daily in my thoughts, then the fear of not having finances available should a need arise, the fear from that is far from me. The fear uh, of the, 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 some people fear about the plane falling out of the sky, or some people fear about a sinkhole underneath their house, and some people have irrational fears, you know, like I'm afraid of frogs or something like that. Um, well, I would consider that to be an irrational fear anyways. Uh, but uh, some people have some strange phobias and fears, and some people live in fear on a daily basis. And some folks, that worry and fear and anxiety gets to become so much a part of them that it physically affects them their blood pressure, other aspects to their body, causes ulcers and other you know, adverse conditions. Where is this fear derived from? It is derived from a lack of faith. It is derived from a lack of relationship with God. It is derived from when we do not spend enough time in His presence, enough time remembering. Remembering what? Remembering what God is capable of. Remembering who God is. Remembering what he has done in the past, not just for you, but for people all around the world. Stories of which you've no doubt read. Hey, that's one good reason to, to read missionary biographies and autobiographies. Why? Because you get to read some pretty amazing stories. Not, not fables, but handwritten historical accounts of how God has worked miraculously and tremendously in somebody's life whether it be personally or as a church or uh, whatever the case is, you get to read that and it's an encouraging thing. Sometimes it makes you wonder, man, I, I want to see this kind of stuff in my life. I want to see God's his hand. I want to see a heavy presence of God's hand in my life like that. But it comes through remembrance. And so he reminds them. You remember crossing the Red Sea? Do you remember as you walked... That, that deep, notice the word deep was used there in referring to the water, the deep waters. Some people say that, uh, well, actually, the Old Testament mistranslated it, and it's not Red Sea, it's Reed Sea, because the Reed Sea was only about this deep. And so it makes sense if a hot desert wind came through and dried up the Reed Sea for a short period of time. That's probably what happened. You know, that's what they say. But the Bible, no, he says deep waters. I parted those deep waters. They'll say the same thing about the Jordan River. All oh, the Jordan River is just a trickle. You know, and so that's really no great miracle. He says, I'm part of the deep waters. And on top of that, he talks about the fierce waves at the top. And you walked across on dry ground and you looked on either side of you and it was a maybe a scary thing. I mean, I can only imagine what it'd be like to walk with walls of water on either side of you and, and literally nothing to protect you from those walls of water, but God. Which, I mean, should be the most reassuring thing, right? But I wonder how many of those Israelites would have felt better if there was a big wall there too. And God. You know, if they would have some, something tangible or, or physical between them and the, and the water would have made them feel just a little bit better. But you look at those waves and that was that water and you think, man, just so quickly that wall of water could just come down upon us all. And it did upon the Egyptian army. Can you imagine? But you forget the Lord. And so you'll continue in fear every single day. It's like when a child decides to ignore mom and dad, to ignore mom and dad's warnings about you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be with those people, you, you need to be here, you need to be doing these things. 
And so they have, in a sense, they've, they've removed themselves from underneath the umbrella of protection that mom and dad gave them. They removed themselves out here. They're going to spend a lot of time in fear out here. Because they don't know everything that their parents know. And clearly they cannot foresee the danger and destruction that the parents can foresee. Because they haven't experienced the things their parents have experienced. Into a little child who gets lost in the mall. I remember getting lost in the mall, even if it was just for a brief second. My mom was short, <laughs> so it was easy to lose my mom in the mall because she hid behind every clothing rack there was, right? I couldn't see her head anywhere. Even when I was taller than her, it was easy to lose my mom in the mall or in Walmart or whatever. But just for those, those even few brief minutes where you're like, Mom, and you start walking around. And of course, as a kid, you're like, I'm going to have to live in this mall for the rest of my life. I'm only going to be able to eat food court food unless the police come and take me to jail. And then I've got to grow up in jail. And you're, you know, as a kid, your mind is like thinking all of these worst case scenarios, which are probably never, ever going to happen. And then of course, within 30 seconds, you find mom, she was over there looking at the, you know, sweaters or something. And she just moved or you moved one of the two. It was probably my fault. When you're not under that umbrella of protection from mom and dad, man, everything scares you. What's that sound? Who is that? What's going on? It must be a bad guy, and you are afraid of every little thing. When we forget his tender love and his care for us, he said, I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand. I like that phrase. It reminds us of how God covered Moses with his hand as Moses hid in the rock. And the Lord made his glory to pass in front of Moses, and he hid Moses there. And the Lord would shelter and would protect his people the same way. He would shelter and protect you in the same way. Imagine having the hand of God's blessing upon you, but imagine having the hand of God's protection, covering you with the shadow of his hand. What great boldness. What great danger might you walk into knowing that you have the hand of God shadowing you over, over you. You know, as a, a little child, maybe you needed a big brother or a big sister or somebody else to protect you. Boy, if they were standing behind you, you could go anywhere. If they were holding your hand, you weren't scared of a thing. You weren't afraid of the dark alleyway. You weren't afraid of walking through the woods. You weren't afraid of the school bully. Not, not if your dad was there. If he had your hand, you had no fear of those things. Now remember, we have him covering us with the shadow of his hand. Even Satan, who is your fiercest foe, remember this, God created him. He has no power except that God granted him upon his creation. Also remember this, in the midst of his rebellion, he neglected to understand that his eventual doom was inevitable. God declared that it would be so. His rebellion was ultimately going to lead to death was ultimately going to lead to his eternal judgment in the lake of fire. So in other words, even Satan is firmly under the controlling grasp of God the Father. And his end has already been written. His end is already known. If God has control of everything, why do we worry so much? Ask this question instead. Where is the fury of the oppressor? This was asked there in that, in that, that uh, passage. The answer comes and it is under the control of God. Even Satan, your fiercest foe, God created him, God governs him, and God can do with him just as he pleases. Then as to that poverty of which some of you are afraid, it will not come unless God permits it. And if it does come, the Lord can alleviate it. I like that quote. Now look at verse number 17. In verse number 9, we are to wake up to the power and greatness of the Lord. We are to open our eyes and to become aware once more of the greatness of the Lord. In verse number 17, we are to, the wake, we are to wake up to something different. We are to wake up to the reality of God's wrath. On one hand, we need to remember the strength and power of the Lord. And on the other hand, 
we need to remember God's great indignation against sin and his wrath upon it. Look at verse 17. We'll read through verse 23. Awake! Awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of the, of the cup of trembling, and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. There is not, there, neither is there any that taketh by her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. Thus saith thy Lord, the Lord, and thy God that pleadeth the cause of his people, behold, Listen, look, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee, which have said to thy soul, bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. We go back. The verse number 17, and he says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. Now, I know the previous section I said was, was directed there at Israel, as is this one, directed right at the city of Jerusalem. Because sometimes God's people fall spiritually asleep, don't we? Sometimes we begin to get lulled into a sense of indifference, a sense of apathy, a sense of laziness a sense of sleep, like there is nothing alarming going on, that there is nothing that is needing our attention currently going on. But that is that could be farther from the truth. As the church, there is a whole lot that is needing our attention. As a Christian, there is a whole lot that ought to be alarming to us, that ought to be keeping us awake, alert, and vigilant, spiritually speaking. This isn't the time to sleep. Romans 13, 11, 12, verse 12 says this. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. I love this call here. This call to change our behavior. I like that. Because a lot of the modern church does not call for a change of behavior anymore. It is a come as you are and leave as you went. So long as you can walk out with a smile upon your face and we have a few more dollars in our account, all is good. But that's not what the Bible calls for. As it says there in Romans 13, he says, cast off the works of darkness. Now, this isn't for your salvation. This is after you're saved. You are to take the works of darkness, the old man. You are to cast it off as an old garment. You are to get rid of that stuff. This is repent. Repent of those things. And then do what? Put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in clamoring and wantonness, not in strife and envying. I think it's interesting. There's so many Christians today that will argue for drinking alcohol. And I don't understand why you would put the effort into studying and preaching that it's okay for a Christian to drink alcohol. Even if you thought that it was okay in moderation when it was controlled, I don't understand if it was something that was so dangerous why you would put any effort into trying to make sure that your congregation knows that it's okay. Even if it were okay. I mean, look what he tells us not to be doing. He wants us to walk honestly as in the day. In other words, doing those things that happen during the day. What happens during the day? I don't know. People work. People clean. People do the, the things that occur usually during the day. I know people have you know, late shift jobs and stuff like that. But what, he, what he's talking about, the opposite here, he says not in rioting and drunkenness or chambering and wantonness. These are the things that go on at night where people go and, and, and have whoever they want to have and do whatever they want to do and involve themselves in the drinking and involve themselves in the drugs and involve themselves in the places of ill repute. 
with people of ill repute, doing things which are not seemly, doing things which are not right. Those are the things that typically occurred in darkness. Why? Because they knew it was wrong. And so they have to go and they do that in the dark of night. Notice that drunkenness is included in here. Some might say, well, fine, so long as I don't get drunk, then I should be fine. Where is that line? I don't know where that line is. I've never touched a drop of alcohol in my life. I wouldn't know exactly where the line is between sober and drunk, but I do know this. Countless men and women have gone down the path saying that they can control it. And countless men and women have fallen horribly. And it destroyed their lives, maybe physically, if not at the least spiritually. And very soon, the drink that they sought to control very quickly took control over them. Why would you toy with something like that? I don't understand. Whenever the Lord refer or talks about in the in scripture talks about you know drinking and alcohol, it is never used in a positive light. It always has negative consequences, and it often is included with a warning. That's all I'm going to say about that. That wasn't a part of the sermon <laughs> this evening. But he doesn't stop using um, drinking from the cup as this analogy here. He, he continues to use that analogy, and I think it's interesting that when he talks about you know, drinking from a cup here, many times it has to do with God's judgment, the wrath of God, you know, drinking from the cup of the wrath of God. And in my mind's eye, I see this image of somebody taking that goblet filled with wine and they're just guzzling it down and wine is running over the sides and down their cheeks and dripping down onto their clothes. And they're just guzzling it down to the very, very bottom and holding the cup upside down. Take this image and go back to what we just read. Which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. This is a common Old Testament picture is the cup of God's wrath or fury. The idea here is that God gives them a full cup of his wrath to those that are under judgment, and they are to drink it. They're to drink it all the way to the bottom and take all of God's wrath. And they did drink at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury, it says here. And they experienced that when the Babylonians came and captured them and put them under captivity for such a long period of time. The image, image here gets even further strengthened when he says, Thou hast drunken of the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Dregs, you know, this is the bottom, uh, the very last bits. Wrung them out, again, giving us the idea of making sure to get every last drop. You have, you have gotten and drunk, drunk all of the fury and wrath of God. Every bit of wrath that God has desired to give you, you're going to get it. He talks here about desolation and destruction, famine and sword, about the young men being held captive and having no strength, not being able to stand up or defend themselves, their families, or their nation. I also think about this passage in Luke 22, where Jesus is kneeling in the garden of the Gethsemane, and he says this, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Another interesting use of the same analogy of the cup. Take this cup from me. Jesus was about to suffer the wrath of God when he took upon him the sins of the world on that cross. He knew that he was going to have to drink fully from that cup. Jesus knew that he was going to have to drink it down to the dregs and take it all. There was no lightening the load of this burden. He could not just take the sins of some of mankind. He couldn't just take some of the sins of mankind. He couldn't just take the sins for the people he liked or the people that he knew would get saved. The Bible says that he died for the sins of all of mankind. He had to drink all of the cup. There was no easy way out for him. He couldn't just say, well, can't you just whip me and, and make it be, call that good, God? No, way back in the Garden of Eden, the, 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 the picture was set. The lamb had to be slain. The innocent 
pure lamb had to be slain and all of the blood had to be shed in order for there to be remission of sins, leading all the way up and pointing to the lamb of God as it was slain, Jesus Christ himself. He says, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling. Notice what happens here. I've given you this cup, or I'm going to, when Babylon's going to come, and you're going to drink all of it. But then I'm going to take it out of your hand. I'm going to give it to somebody else. Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt drink. Thou shalt no more drink it again. I believe this has this is more, more so speaking to a long-term fulfillment for them. Long-term speaking to the time when under Jesus' rule and reign, Israel is going to have their hearts turned back towards him again during the, during the um, Great Tribulation period. And then at the end of the Great Tribulation period, Jesus is going to return. And then he's going to rule and reign there with his people once more and with his bride, the church, once more as well for a thousand years. And he says, I'm going to give that cup to somebody else. And he's going to give that cup to Babylon. Babylon, they're going to end up struggling and they're going to end up falling under the Medes and Persians. And then he's going to give that cup to the Medes and Persians. And you know what, as I mentioned before, you know what's happened to every single nation, empire, or people that has troubled Israel? Every one of them has been brought down dramatically. I remember not too long ago going through empire after empire and country after country that has troubled Israel. And every one of them has paid for it desperately. That's why we as America, as we desperately need to, to, to continue to support Israel. They may, not, they may not be the worshiping God in the way they should be. They still may be in rejection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's only going to last for so long. I don't know when it's going to be, if it's going to be in my lifetime, if, if the rapture will occur, and then God will begin to get a hold of the hearts of the people of Israel once more. But nevertheless, that cup of trembling was given away to the enemies of Israel. The Lord knows when to give the cup, and the Lord knows when to take it away. It may be that you have had the cup of suffering. Maybe that you will soon. But he knows when to remove it. Because he is God. He's made promises to you. Listen to this quote from a very well-known preacher. He said, When faith is weak, men are in a dreadful hurry. But strong faith does not judge the Lord to be slack concerning his promise. Think about that. When faith is weak, men are in a dreadful hurry. When we don't have much faith in God's provision or protection, we are desperate for him to step in and take care of the problem now. Now, hurry up, God, now. Because we have weak faith. But strong faith does not judge the Lord to be slack concerning his promise. As God achieves his purpose with infinite leisure, he loves a faith that is patient and looks not for its reward this day or the next. He that believeth shall not make haste. That is to say, he shall not be ashamed or confounded by the present trials, so as to rush upon unbelieving actions. Faith leaves times and seasons with God to whom they belong. How strong is your faith? I'm afraid that according to this definition, that is, my faith is sometimes weak. God, I need you to come and answer this prayer now. <laughs> I need an answer now. I have a deadline or I have a worry and I'm tired of worrying and I'm tired of stressing out about it. I'm tired of that feeling in the pit of my stomach. And, and Lord, I just need an answer. I need you to fix the problem now so that I don't spend another minute in discomfort. But that's a weak faith. He says, again, here at the very end, Behold, I have taken out of thy hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, verse 23. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict thee. Those that have said, which, which have said uh, to thy soul, bow down that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. This was common practice uh, in the, the, the ancient Near East. It was barbaric. You know, you would make your enemies in an attempt to belittle them. 
uh, you would make them lay down on the ground and you would walk on top of them or step over them. You were making them in your presence and in their own you know, uh, realization that they were less than dirt to you and your empire or your city or your people or whatever it was because of their ethnicity is because they were a slave, they were conquered or their race or something like that, that they were less than dirt. So you lay down and I'll walk on you because it would be better that you get dirt all over you and the discomfort of laying there than I get a grain of sand upon my feet. And so I will walk upon your backs. And it was a well-documented practice. Uh, the Assyrians, you can see in their inscriptions of them doing this to their captive enemies, uh, causing them to bend down, lay down on the ground and walking on them or walking over them. But God is going to give the same humiliation to those who humiliated his people. Israel did not need to seek out restitution by, for those who hurt them. God was going to do that, and he promised he would. Church, Christian, we don't need to seek restitution from those who hurt us. We don't need to seek revenge or retribution. That's the word I've been trying to come up with here. We don't need to seek retribution for things that have been done to us. We need to let Lord take care of the retribution because he will. He promises he will rather than seeking it out ourselves. And so here we have seen that we are to awake one to the great power and glory of the Lord, that we are awake to awaken to his greatness. But then also we have seen that we are awakened to the wrath of God as well. Now, yeah, I know, understand that these passages were written to Israel. As a Christian, no doubt you would agree with me that we also need to be aware and awakened to these things. To the greatness of God and the power of God and what he has done in the past and therefore what he is still capable of doing in the present. But also awaken ourselves to the wrath of God. To the wrath of God towards sin. And the judgment that must be upon sin, but also the wrath of God towards those that hate him and hate his people and do everything in their power to stop or to destroy him. And that not even the devil himself, and I tell you what, we might look at some of our politicians and think, man, nobody could stop them. They're so devious. We might look at uh, somebody who's running, you know, Disney or who's running some uh, TV station. And we think, man, they're so powerful and rich and so devious. Nobody can stop them. We might think of them as unstoppable, but man, the devil himself has an end. God's already called it. We already know what it is. We don't need to worry about some politician. We don't need to worry about some CEO somewhere. Let them hate and rant and rail against God. They're making their bed and they're going to have to sleep in it one day. Instead of hating them and desiring their demise, let's pray for them. Because if we could witness them spending even one minute in hell or the lake of fire, I think our hearts would change from that of hatred to that of sorrow and pity. Wondering if there is something more we could do to have prevented them, to have changed their mind from going to a place like that. Well, be aware, awaken to God's greatness and awaken to God's wrath. And we'll continue into Isaiah chapter 52 next Wednesday. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.